The way that we feel inside is what we project onto the world around us. The more frequent exposure you get to sunlight during the day, it's increasing melatonin secretion from the pineal gland at night. The good news is you can achieve extraordinary things by restoring the lost microbes. We survive in conjunction with others. We're that's why the lone wolf is a saying, or he, that person's a loner, right? Because that's unusual. If you're not getting the results at the rate that you think you want or you think you deserve, something's holding you back. It's not your genetics, it's not your time. It's often your effectiveness. How many adults do you know that are in tune with their own emotions like i like it's it's very limited right yeah so like i always joke about you know parents who get mad at kids for being emotional it's like you're an adult you have no idea why you're emotional and you have words for it they don't even have words for it most yeah. of the time and you're like reprimanding them for getting emotional like just accept it and love it and maybe right. help them through it yeah it's funny but so what would be our process as an adult um again for for a child i think it's relatively maybe it's not simple but yeah like just accept it, right? And happening as an adult who, who feels like they know they have emotions or maybe they've taught to like, you know, hide them or, or yeah. beat them down or they just are unaware of what that looks like. What what do you have a, I think we talked about this a little bit yesterday. What's your process? So um, I want to answer one thing that you said and then I want to go into that, which is that if there's a, if you're not doing something that you say you want to do or are going to do, it is not because you lack discipline it's not because you're lazy and it's not because there's something wrong with you. There is a reason. And I cannot emphasize this enough. So much of our shame, so much of our feelings of insecurity or, you know, the expression of kind of our, our worth over life is because we look back at these data points and we're like, well, I said I was going to gain muscle or lose weight or do whatever. And I didn't do it. And it's because I'm not disciplined and I'm lazy and I'm a piece of shit. And that is one way to look at it. And yes, that is a way to look at it. And if you look under the hood, there is a reason why. If you believe that your worth and value is tied to achieving and you want to spend an hour at the gym and that goes against a survival mechanism that's like, oh, no, you can't afford to spend an hour at the gym. You need to be achieving because if you don't achieve, you're worthless. You're not going to go to the gym. And it's not because you're undisciplined and lazy. It's because your survival instinct is telling you that you need to be at the office. Right. So if you want to spend more time with your family and you're like, OK, I want to be a good husband or I, I want to be a good wife, I want to spend more time with my family. You might want to spend more time with your family. But if there's a part of your brain that, again, believes your worth and value is tied to working hard, you will create hard work whether or not you need the money. Right. If you have five hundred million dollars in the bank and you are sitting at the office and you believe that working hard is what makes you worthy, you are not going to go home. And it's not because you're lazy and it's not because you're undisciplined and it's not because you're a piece of shit. It's because your safety in your mind is predicated upon being at the office. So I just want to make that really, really clear for everyone. Well, you can't you can't start that conversation and not continue to with that. <laughs> I know you wanted to answer a whole bunch of other stuff, but that 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 is the the predicament of everyone right it's like i think yeah like it's it's as you originally spoke about weeks ago with with me was the lack of congruency or harmony between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala you know what to do you're not doing it there mm. you have to get these two things in alignment right and that's a safety conversation yeah keep it coming bit. keep it coming keep it coming <laughs> right. i want to understand because yeah i work with hundreds if not thousands of people who are like 
you know, and you get 10%, I would say, and that's a guess, but I'd say 10% of people who set a goal, accomplish a goal. They're like, yep, I got it. No matter what, I do it. And everyone else yeah. wavers. Some people yeah. like move forward and three steps forward, two steps back. And some people right. don't make any forward progress. So yes. like, I just, you know, I can't. Yep. So I want to understand, and I'm sure the audience wants to understand, yeah, I don't even want to direct you on that. Where yep. would you go with that? Yeah. So a couple things that are really important here. The first one is your brain is not designed to keep you happy. Your brain is designed to keep you safe. So I want you to think about your brain as having a singular mission, which is safety. You develop your sense of safety during your first seven years, right? So you're trying to, you're new in town, right? You're new to this place. You have no idea what's going on. So you're trying to figure out what's safe. Because your survival does not depend upon yourself, because your survival depends upon your parents, what creates harmony in your family is what feels safe, right? So if my survival depends upon you, having harmony with you is the thing that makes me feel safe. Having disharmony with you makes me feel unsafe. Why? What if you abandon me and I die, right? That's how the brain works. So we think that our sense of safety has to do with danger, our sense of safety has nothing to do with danger. Our sense of safety has to do with what created harmony in our family from zero to seven. So if conflict created disharmony from zero to seven, now I'm 30, 40, 50, 90 years old, conflict creates fear because my brain is a pattern recognition engine, right? It, it I call it pattern matching. But what it does is it looks at something. If your brain wants to be safe, it's going to look and say, what have I seen in the past that is similar to this? And what can I predict based off of what I saw? So the environment that we have in zero to seven, we then project onto our present reality for the rest of our life. And the things that created disharmony from zero to seven trigger the, the safety mechanism in our brain and then it creates fear, not because you're in danger, but because your brain thinks you're in danger because it created disharmony in your family from zero to seven. So this is kind of the first foundation that, again, could not be more important. If you look at the places in your life where you're blocked, one way to look at it is it's that I'm weak there, or again, I'm undisciplined and lazy, or I'm just not capable, or I don't have the skills. And another way to look at it is the places in your life where you have resistance or the things that cause fear because they created disharmony in your family from zero to seven. So another kind of important piece of this puzzle is if being well-liked or being smart or achieving created harmony, you then link that to safety. So now being liked is not just about having a connection. Hey, I'm so glad you like me. I like you too. Isn't that nice? That's very different from I need you to like me to be safe. So now this thing that created a feeling of safety as a child is now running my life. Because if my goal is to be safe, being liked is not about connection. Being liked is about safety. Achieving is not about expressing your genius zone. It's about being safe, right? People pleasing, right? Whatever those patterns are, are all about safety. So from this perspective, safety is at the bottom of everything. So the bottom, bottom of everything, right? So much of what we say yes to and what we say no to. If making a mistake or failing created disharmony in my family, what's wrong with you, right? If I got a reaction from a parent, a critical parent that made me feel like if I made a mistake, I was unworthy. Making a mistake and failing will trigger a feeling of unsafe in my brain. So now I'm trying to be innovative and creative in my company, but I can't make mistakes and fail. I know logically, again, prefrontal cortex, make mistakes and fail. It's the way to do it, right? Be innovative. But if my amygdala is like, oh, hell no, 
you can't make mistakes and fail. It makes you unworthy. That's not safe. I'm not going to do it, right? So the things that we resist in our life are are not about how strong we are, how capable we are. It's about what feels safe and unsafe. We don't do things for the most part that feel unsafe, or if we do, it takes a lot of willpower. So this comes back then to the process of see what you're taking off the table. See what you th- you're like, oh, I can't, I'm not capable of that. I can't do that. I can't do that. And this will kind of give you, leave, leave you the breadcrumbs to determine yeah. where these challenges arise or these, these holes are. Yeah. And another tool, this I think is actually really useful for everyone listening. When you start to become aware of the things in your life that are unsafe for you, right? Because again, it's, it's all about safety. We have an ability to kind of reactivate our prefrontal cortex. And one way of doing that is to label the things that create fear. So I, I want to come back to fear, whether it is mild nervousness or abject terror, right? It's the same trigger in our brain. It's a perceived threat to our survival. So when we have fear that's created, it's because our brain is like, oh, there's a chance that we're not safe. It's a perceived threat to our survival. One thing that you can do to create, I I would call it an empowered mindset, is to label the things that create fear as uncomfortable. Because uncomfortable, we can manage. If we feel unsafe, we get small, right? It's kind of, we throw our hands in the air. It's like we want to cower in the corner. If something is unsafe, it's really hard to overcome, right? In the face of unsafety, it's like, what are you, what are you really going to do? You might fight, but th- that's really it. And so if you, instead of calling it unsafe, call it uncomfortable, you re-engage your prefrontal cortex. So if I believe that something is unsafe, again, I'm, I'm likely to push it away. But if I'm like, oh, wait, I'm, I'm feeling fear. If you notice any level of fear, be like, oh, I'm feeling fear. My brain thinks I'm unsafe. I'm not unsafe. I'm uncomfortable. Well, if you're uncomfortable, now you can start problem solving. I've been uncomfortable before. I've been uncomfortable more times than I can count in my life. And hey, here I am. I was able to problem solve. I was able to manage. Discomfort is a completely different mindset. And so by labeling, when you get nervous, just notice it. Anytime there's a fear, there's a resistance. If there's a resistance, you can you can start to look, is there fear here? Am I afraid of this? Am I avoiding it because I'm afraid of it? You're saying, yeah, I, I am a little bit nervous about it. Great. No problem. Say, oh, my brain thinks I'm unsafe right now. Am I actually unsafe? No. What am I? I'm uncomfortable. The word uncomfortable is one of the most empowering words from my perspective in the entire language. I am uncomfortable. Oh, I'm just uncomfortable. I've been uncomfortable before. What do I want to do? Now we go back into problem solving. This feels like maybe the most important information that every parent in the world just needs to hear. Like if it just comes down to safety, it's such an easy problem to solve for. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I can just make you feel safe or I can just tell you that, hey, I'm here for you. You're safe. Mm-hmm. Express what you feel. Move through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, logically, this should be handed to everyone like the parenting playbook. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's so interesting that I've never heard anybody explain it that way where the only thing a child needs from zero to seven is like, I want to feel safe. And if I can feel safe, then I can be free to express. I can be free to be me. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm missing the parenting books that are expressing this stuff. And I haven't read them all for sure, but yeah. that's so interesting, so powerful. And yeah, I think you're you're responsible. I'm, I'm officially making you in charge of writing the parenting book <laughs> about parent safety. I nominate you, Britt. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, no pressure. Get you it done in the next six months or I'm going to be beating down your door. Great. Good to know. <laughs> I'm going to hear a knock. I'm going to be like, honey, someone's at the door. <laughs> Let me stand there looking at my That series watch. like six months. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, it just—it feels so um, relevant in our society right now because, you know, fear is definitely being inculcated into the minds of the masses. And mm-hmm. if you know, I wonder 
how much influence it would have to have a child from zero to seven feel safe to express, to be, mm -hmm. to play, to just yeah. like be a child and how much that would influence the trajectory of the world as we get older. And I wonder, you know, as a parent, they might not feel safe. So how yeah. can they offer safety to their, yeah. their, you know, little toddler? And yeah, like if you're watching the news every day and, and, and it's like being inculcated mm. in fear, yeah. you're going to bring that home to your kids and then your kids are going to grow up with so much fear and uncertainty and they're going to find the little pocket of the world that makes them feel safe or welcome right. or belong, feel like they belong. And that's just creating so much uh, interesting disharmony in the world right now. Yeah. There's a quote that I love so much. It's, we don't see things as they are. We see them as we are. Mm -hmm. And I just think that there's so much wisdom and truth in that. And the way that we feel inside is what we project onto the world around us. And so it makes sense that if we're feeling unsafe and then we go watch the news, it's just evidence. It's just an affirmation. It's see, right? See? Sure. And so being aware of, I think of it as mirrors, that we live in a world of mirrors. Everyone shows us, everything shows us how we feel, so true. right? And so different people in different environments are going to remind us of who we believe ourselves to be. So you guys have both trained, coached, and worked with athletes at the highest level. And these are people that are trying to get the, the most out of every single day. Um, what, what are the typical things you guys are working, you're working on with athletes at the greatest uh, consistency or the most frequently we'll say? as far as increasing their adaptive, adaptive reserve? Yeah, I would say there's five pillars. Hmm. Sleep, exercise, mental fitness, nutrition, and relationships and community. Those five things, no matter who you are, the scientific literature is very clear. They do, if you engage in specific thresholds, you hit certain thresholds in these various activities or these various subdomains, not only does it improve your ability to adapt to more stress, it increases longevity. And these are the things that are going to build a bigger tank. And so no matter who you are, if you're not doing these things to a certain degree, you're going to suffer. And mm -hmm. so we could kind of knock some of these off, but the elite of the elite, as Chris was saying, so I've worked with like professional sprinters, you know, Olympic gold medalists or NFL football players or they all kind of have the same biological signatures. Uh, they respond and adapt super fast. Now, we may not all be able to have that quick reverse and that delta, but we can all increase our adaptive capacity. The literature is very clear on that. And it just depends on how fast with where you're starting from. And so if you want to, we can talk about some of these different. Sure. Yeah. And so one thing I'd love to yeah. you touch along those lines is like, well, getting into like well, how much, right? Like yeah. how far should I push this system as far as like what does the science show as far as the fastest, most effective way to adapt? You know, if, if I'm trying to push a specific system, if you could touch on that a little bit in this, in this journey. Yeah. So I'm going to start with one of the things I'm most biased towards and that's sleep because that was my work. My research was on how sleep impacts our brain's ability to adapt to stress. Sleep is like the the fundamental tenet behind pretty much all adaptive responses that occur. It helps with multiple things. I'm sure we've all heard restoration of our immune system. So Chris was talking about when you're awake, those stress systems are turning on, right? 
And what happens is when those systems are turned on, uh, your body's mobilizing resources to adapt to the dominant threat or dominant need at the time. When your gas tank gets low, you can no longer respond appropriately. So like if you're trying to improve protein synthesis or increase muscle hypertrophy or speed or power strength, you're not going to have as much adaptive reserves to allocate. When you sleep at night, those systems are down-regulated. And a couple of really cool things happen. When those systems are down-regulating, you get restful and fulfilling sleep. Cortisol's turned down. Cortisol's a great hormone, really important for being alert and focused during the day. But at nighttime, if that's chronically elevated, your immune system's going to be compromised. You have long-term adaptogenic memory that it actually takes place. There's this cool little relationship between slow wave sleep and your body's ability to create immunological memory for foreign invaders. So when this happens, your your immune system actually like creates this memory of like, oh, this is a bad foreign invader. I can address it faster in the future. From an endocrine perspective, we know that during slow wave or deep sleep, growth hormone is released, which is critical for tissue regeneration. More of that happens so sleep is like in 90 to 120 minute cycles and early in sleep, you have a pressure for slow wave or deep sleep. And so you're going to see more of these pul- this big pulse and growth hormone. Later on at night, you have more REM sleep and that is for, for men critical for testosterone release. And most of our testosterone is released during then. As a matter of fact, in older men, you can almost predict with high level of accuracy their testosterone level just by looking at sleep duration and fragmentation and so if you're the first thing that's going to happen is your body's going to prioritize that growth hormone because it's trying to restore the tissues later on at night some cognitive things happen we'll talk about some motor learning things but you may have a dramatic decrease in testosterone if you're not getting at least at least seven hours a night there was a paper. So when we're in our thirties, we start decreasing testosterone by one to 2% per year. There was a paper that showed that just one week of chronic sleep uh, restriction to five hours a night led to like a 10 to 15% reduction in overall testosterone. That's like aging a decade in one week as far as right. testosterone. So um, you mentioned eating earlier. Sleep also regulates leptin and ghrelin, which are your hunger hormones. And consistently sleeping less than seven hours a night leads to overeating up to about 400 calories a day. Sleep is really important for things like protein synthesis. Your body undergoes significant restoration during that time. Actually, there's a period during sleep where you have a blocking at the corticospinal pathways where you're basically in complete paralysis. And we believe this is so that you can have myofibular restoration because now like your body can't move so your muscle tissues can completely relax. A lot of uh, muscle protein synthesis is happening during that time. Also, if this happens during REM sleep, you know, you have crazy dreams. Like if you could actually act those things out, that could be pretty dangerous. So your body kind of shuts off that, uh, that capability. There's a lot of um, motor learning that happens during different parts of sleep. So memory consolidation, learning, the finalization of learning, neuroplasticity happens while you sleep. So from a restorative property, uh, restorative perspective, sleep is like one of the primary things that you need to get. So seven to nine hours is critical. Most people overestimate by half an hour. 
So if you think, you know, I'm going to bed at 11, getting up at six and you're getting seven, you are not. Actually, there was a paper that just uh, Apple and the American Heart Association are doing a study together right now. They're releasing the findings and it was, I believe, almost two million nights of sleep and all these people wearing Apple watches. The average person in the U.S. is sleeping six and a half hours a night. This is deleterious for adaptive processes. There was also another paper that just came out recently on central adiposity in sleep. And there was kind of this leveling off. Did you see this, Ben, where like, you know, you had less uh, central adiposity kind of leveling off at eight hours a night. And so I thought that was fascinating. But it's really critical for muscle hypertrophy, strength development, hormone regulation, protein synthesis, immune function. Like if you want to unhinge somebody, like take away sleep. That's why like in a lot of these um, special operations communities, specifically the army, they'll sleep deprive you and take away food because now they can really see how you can respond under pressure and under stress. So if you want to adapt and thrive, you definitely need to get enough sleep. I'll close by saying this. My research was looking... Uh, so, Omega Wave did two things. It looks at HRV and something called DC potential. And DC potential is a slow cortical potential in the brain. And it's basically... You actually get a millivolt potential. So, it's almost like a battery. And there's some literature out there that shows that, like there's these certain ranges, millivolt ranges that are ideal for skill acquisition and learning and performance. And seven to nine hours slotted you right within those ideal times. And it lined up with exactly what the National Sleep Foundation said, you know, says. And so if you're listening to this, you're like, look, I'm great on six. I can almost guarantee you that you're not. You most likely don't have that genetic polymorphism that allows you to thrive. So you know, sleep is the first one. Do you, is there any, you know, one any feedback on that or questions? Yeah, yeah. That, that was amazing. So I mean, the, I think it would be remiss to to not dive into some of your favorite practices to improve sleep. So the audience yeah. has heard, you know, the basic things. Uh, I'm curious if you have a protocol, if you have some sleep hygiene stuff. Is there anything that you're like, hey, this is this is a non-negotiable for you? Yeah, one of the first things that we learned, there's two things that drive sleep. There's this homeostatic drive, which means like when you wake up in the morning, you're not as sleepy, hopefully. As the day progresses, you'll get this hunger for sleep. That's that's the first one. The second one is the circadian drive. The circadian rhythm is literally means about 24 hours. It's an endogenous rhythm. And there are these things called zeitgebers or time givers that really anchor your circadian clock. Light, temperature, food, movement. The most critical one is light. We learned this like day one, if you read any scientific literature on this. So Andrew Huberman did not invent this. It's in the literature. I don't think he would take credit either, but you need to go outside and get sunlight. And here's why. Light interacts with these cells in your eyes that sends a signal to this thing that sits above the roof of your mouth called the suprachiasmatic nucleus or the circadian pacemaker. When you have enough intensity of light coming into the eyes, the circadian pacemaker then sends a signals to the every cell in your body that it's time to be alert. It does this through increasing cortisol and it also increases body temperature. So now you're more alert. During the day, as you get more sunlight exposure, actually, you know, Sachin Panda is, he's at the Salk Institute. Sure. 
Yeah. yeah, I just had him. I just had him on my podcast, and something I learned that I did not know. I knew that the relationship between light and melatonin, but they're finding now that the more frequent exposure you get to sunlight during the day, it's increasing melatonin secretion from the pineal gland at night. So, look, like, it's one thing for me to be like, sleep more. You're like, gee, thanks. Great, Eric. That's that's really helpful. It's another thing, like, what do I do to create the conditions to where I want to fall asleep? So, get up in the morning, get as much bright light, and then during the day, like, I just... Every 90 minutes to two hours, I just go get a lap or two around the block. Also try to get in a little more steps, right? But if light is an alerting signal in the morning, it's also an alerting signal in the evening. So as the sun goes down, you need to dampen the lights in your house. Chris and I do Zoom calls sometimes at nights for AIM-7 and like I got all the lights down. It's like a cave in here because you're going to stay alert. And so it's not... You know, the blue light on your cell phone is one thing. It's just light in general in your home. And so if you want your kids to fall asleep, if you want to fall asleep, just start turning things down. And then I would say the last big one is the cell phone can like just crush you. And and it's not so much the blue light as it is. There was a really cool study done on this recently where they were like looking at light versus it's really just the emotional arousal. Mm. So if you're in bed and you're like, ah, I just want to check one more time on this. And all of a sudden you were dead tired, but you saw a video or you read a thread on Twitter or a YouTube video, all of a sudden you're alert and awake and emotionally aroused. That crushes your ability to go to sleep. And so, you know, regulate your day with light. At nighttime, try to avoid emotional stimulation. If you do this for several weeks or even a month and you're still having issues, you definitely want to go see a um, a physician or somebody that you know can do a sleep study because you know sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea can if you can get that cleared up, that could change your life. I know this is a loaded question. We can go a long, a long way with this one, but I'm curious what your response is to if I say, what is it about the microbiome that has such an incredible influence on cardiac events or say cardiac function, just from a high level, you know, if you could just start high level and then we could chunk down in certain areas. Well, to, to, to get your arms around that, Ben, it's important to recognize a few things. So we've all, as a society, been overexposed to antibiotics, to glyphosate, in the herbicide Roundup, glyphosate's an herbicide, but it's also an antibiotic, but it's a peculiar antibiotic. It's, it's, it is effective in killing off beneficial species and ineffective in killing off non-beneficial species. So it essentially selects for unhealthy, mostly fecal microbes. And then there's other herbicides and pesticides. There's emulsifying agents uh, like polysorbate 80 and ice cream and salad dressings. There's synthetic sweeteners. There's chlorinated drinking water, uh, stomach acid blocking drugs, anti-inflammatory drugs. All these things have conspired to introduce massive change in the gastrointestinal microbiome, but mostly loss of hundreds of beneficial species. So of the thousand plus species in the GI microbiome, we've lost several hundred and they performed important functions. So when you lose the important species, these are species like lactobacilli, bifidobacteria, fecalobacterium. When you lose those guys, 
the unhealthy, mostly fecal microbes like E. coli, Klebsiella, Pseudomonas, uh, Salmonella, oh, by the way, also species of food poisoning, these mi fecal microbes proliferate. And by my estimation, in one out of two people, so it's everywhere, these fecal microbes have ascended into the small bowel, 24 feet of small bowel. Some people call it fecalization. So, and you can measure this, you can prove it. So 24 feet plus the four or five feet of colon, you've got about 30 feet of fecal microbes. Now microbes don't last, they don't live for decades, they live for hours at most, sometimes just an hour. So if you had trillions of microbes in 30 feet of gastrointestinal tract turning over rapidly, when they die, some of the components of their cell walls will enter the bloodstream. And that's a very important process, finally validated by a European group in 2007 uh, called endotoxemia, because the breakdown products of microbes is called endotoxin. So, and that's been since corroborated many, many, many times, hundreds of times. We now know that endotoxemia tells us how microbes in the GI tract can be experienced in the brain as depression, anxiety, Parkinson's disease, dementia, or in muscles and joints as fibromyalgia or rheumatoid arthritis, or as a metabolic condition like insulin resistance, prediabetes, type 2 diabetes, fatty liver, high triglycerides. So in other words, just about every modern chronic condition has to be re-examined in light of the contribution of the microbiome via endotoxemia. Does endotoxemia have have with it the necessary prerequisite of you must have some semblance of leaky gut or or is, so if your if your gut is intact and it's a healthy GI tract does the do these endotoxins just just get excreted or is it everyone who's getting these endotoxins is going to have some cell, some semblance of endotoxemia two big factors in causing endotoxemia gut leak some people say one is the gliadin protein of wheat we know that with good confidence because of uh, Dr. Alessio Fasano's work, very, very pioneering work, that the gliadin protein in everybody who consumes uh, wheat and related grains increases the intestinal permeability, including to endotoxin. And then another thing to know is that those fecal microbes are the ones that have all that endotoxin. Mm. Another thing to know is that, so if your fecal microbes are in the colon, the colon tolerates that very easily. It has a thick two-layer mucus barrier as it's tough to penetrate. But if those microbes get access to your small intestine, the small intestine is not used to that. It's not, a, not adapted to that, to fecal microbes. The small intestine has a much more fragile, thinner, single-layer mucus barrier. So when those fecal microbes are in the small bowel, they're much more able to penetrate, breach the lining, and get in your bloodstream. So there's a number of factors that are operating in modern people that have increased the frequency, the severity of endotoxemia. That's interesting. So as far as common ailments, and you're, you're mentioning SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, that's one that's, you said it, I've heard you say it's like one in two people. That's unbelievable as far as the the prevalence of that. I would love to dive into that, but what else uh, as far as like gut issues are people experiencing? Is that just like the main one we got to watch out for is, you know, how much of a concern is you know, yeast grow overgrowth or, or parasite overgrowth or, or dysbiosis. <laughs> All issues are exactly right, Ben. So among that list you just had listed, a fungal overgrowth is a big deal, uh, much underappreciated, but recent evidence is showing, oh yeah, fungal overgrowth in the colon, but also just like SIBO, CFO, small intestinal fungal overgrowth is a big deal. Uh, intestinal methanogen overgrowth, 
uh, archaea species, another thing that's becoming clear. By the way, the thing that made me change my mind about the frequency of SIBO, I thought SIBO was an uncommon thing till this thing came out, the AIR device, uh, A-I-R-E. Yep. And so it came out in 2018, and it's a way of mapping where in the GI tract microbes are living. I have thousands of people doing it, and but I was shocked that it was uncommon for someone to test negative. Now, you might say, well, maybe the test is wrong. Well, people would test positive. It has, all, has everything to do with timing when you release hydrogen gas. Uh, not necessarily the amount, but the timing. Somebody would take a therapeutic program, and they come back, test negative, and they say, well, now my depression is lifted finally, or my joint pain finally went away completely, or I finally lost that 35 pounds where I was stuck. In other words, the residual problem, my food intolerances to histamine containing foods, FODMAPs, nice, went away. And so it became clear, yeah, this is everywhere. By the way, when I say one in two people, the way I got that number was I went through all the science, not my science, other people's science, Studies that ask questions like this, of the 160 million people in the US who have fatty liver, that's true by the way, 50% of the population now is fatty liver, what proportion test positive for SIBO? Well, 50%, that data is pretty good. Well, if there's 160 million people with fatty liver and 50% have SIBO, that's 80 million right there. How about the people with uh, who are obese and type 2 diabetic? That combines around 100 million, shockingly about 50% test positive for C. Well, that's another 50 million or so. How about the people with irritable bowel syndrome? There's 60 to 70 million people in the US with irritable bowel syndrome, IBS. Well, numbers vary depending on that study, but roughly about 40%. So that's another, what, 24 million people. Now there's overlap in those groups, overweight diabetics with fatty liver. But if you go through the whole list, neurodegenerative disorders, autoimmune diseases, fibromyalgia, depression, Alzheimer's dementia, go through all and ask what proportion tests positive for SIBO, you'll get to 160 million really fast. And so that's where my one out of two Americans comes from. It is, it is, and then having this access to this consumer device, in my mind, confirmed it. It's it's everywhere. So it sounds like, and you could be correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like the big two are going to be IBS and SIBO. And I'm I'm curious if you could differentiate between those two. And ultimately, what causes them independently? So I know I know people who have both, but I wouldn't know what ultimately is the reason why they got those ailments. So there's a lot. There's a long list of reasons, like we talked about earlier: exposure yep. to antibiotics. Yeah, but sp uh, there's specific things that would predispose one person to one and not the other. There's also yet yeah, there's genetic susceptibility to the IBS part of it. A lot of IBS is just SIBO. But there seems to be also, Mark Pimentel at Cedar Sinai has done a lot of this work. He's done a very good job of showing us that some people have IBS that may not be SIBO that's post-infectious. You, you had a bad case of food poisoning or you had a viral gastroenteritis and it induced SIBO. I'm sorry, uh, IBS. Uh, oddly, if you go on an all-expense-paid all vacation in Mexico and you get an open bar and, and you're drinking too many margaritas, Three days of a sugary drink can give you IBS. So there's a lot of things that go, but it is clear that a lot of IBS is really SIBO. That's why I know in the US, you'll see commercials for rifaximin for IBS. Well, rifaximin is an antibiotic. Why would IBS respond to an antibiotic? Because it's SIBO. A lot of the cases of IBS are SIBO. Mechanistically within SIBO, 
it's this, it sounds like it's this backing up for, of the bacteria, the fecal bacteria from the colon into the small intestine. Is there something other than the, all these these you know environmental and lifestyle interventions that you've mentioned that's causing this backup process? Is it just the the overall prevalence of these fecal ba- bacteria because they're maybe more prevalent than they should be as far as ratios, and they just there's just too many and they back up? What exactly would you say are the kind of primary reasons why that why this would just kick off? So loss of those beneficial microbes, those beneficial microbes suppressed. Mm the ascendance, the climbing up of fecal microbes. If you take a stomach acid blocking drug, an H2 blocker or a PPI like Prilosec, Protonix, Asifex, the stomach acid is a very effective barrier to oral microbes and food microbes and to ascending fecal microbes. When you, when you don't have stomach acid, whether it's from taking one of those drugs or it's from hypochlorhydria because you ate wheat and the gliadin protein cause your the loss of your parietal cells that produce acid, or from H. pylori, the microbe that infects the stomach and impairs its ability to make stomach acid. When you lose stomach acid, it's an open door invitation to fecal microbes to climb up and for all microbes to colonize the upper GI tract. So it's a kind of a double duty. If you take a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug like ibuprofen, you cause intestinal inflammation and that changes the microbiome. There's a long list of these things. It's not just one thing. It's many, many things that have conspired to do this. Now, that's the bad news. The good news is you can achieve extraordinary things by restoring the lost microbes. Hey, everybody. Ben Pekulski back with another quick video for you. In the last video, I mentioned there's eight areas that we really focus on in muscle intelligence coaching and in the muscle intelligence brand new phase one program. Phase one is really about what is the base level thing you need to be doing? So it doesn't matter if you've been training for one year, 10 years, 25 years or more. If you're not getting the results that you want, if you're not getting the results at the rate that you think you want or you think you deserve, something's holding you back. It's not your genetics. It's not your time. It's often your effectiveness. And effectiveness can st- stem from what you're doing in the gym, certainly, which is a bottleneck for most people. But it's also can stem from your ability to recover what we call your adaptive capacity. So you can be training really hard in the gym, but if you're not able to recover from it, all that effort is wasted. So in muscle intelligence coaching, we really focus on one, pushing the gas pedal harder, pushing the accelerator harder. So we want you to go to drive the car faster, but we can't drive the car faster unless your body's adapting to that stimulus. So we're not giving you the, the health, the healing capacity, the recovery potential, your body's not going to adapt. So we're really focused on uh, pushing and pulling with, we're going to push to push performance a little bit further. We're going to push the recovery a little bit further, push the performance a little bit further and push the recovery a little bit further. And there's a lot of stuff that goes into those two buckets and the eight areas that we kind of start with, which will be, you know, very, very familiar to all you, all you men out there. Uh, these eight areas are muscle. We want to build muscle because muscle is the organ of longevity. Muscle is going to help your metabolism. It's going to help your body not become inflamed. It's going to help your body ultimately be better at using nutrients that you consume. Muscle is your engine. That's number one. Number two is mobility. We want you to move well. Mobility doesn't mean I want you to be a yogi. Mobility doesn't necessarily mean I need you to do the splits. It just means like, hey, I want you to control the ranges you do have really, really well. And so mobility could also be called stability. And stability means can I go to the end range of what I have access to and, and control it with some appropriate amount of weight? You know, as you guys see in this world, men are becoming weak, men are becoming soft, Men are becoming effeminate, and it's not, our, not your fault. It's just like, hey, there, what what challenges do you intentionally put in front of yourself? The world is becoming easy. That's a wonderful thing. The world is becoming 
convenient and in life, you can either choose comfort or you can choose growth, but you can't have both. And so what we talk about uh, often in the community is just this reality, like what are your daily disciplines? What are your daily discomforts, right? How are you choosing discomfort, right? I could have easily this morning just skipped skip the workout, had my breakfast and felt great about myself. I'm like, yeah, I feel, feel pretty good about it because I would have been unconscious about it. I knew in that moment when I was laying there going, I could probably skip today. I didn't sleep very well last night. I knew in that moment I had the opportunity to become a better version of myself or retreat into comfort. And I choose growth every time. I choose growth. And if you can simply choose growth every time, you will continue to progress and grow. So muscle is number one. Mobility is number two. Number three is metabolism. Your ability to use nutrients that you eat. Metabolism is the ability ultimately to extract energy from an ATP to produce energy, to be able to do things in life. Energy is not just like uh, having an abundance to dance and play and, and run. Well, that, that's a big part of it. Energy also drives brain function. It also drives hormone production. It also drives detoxification. There's so many things that energy drives. And if you don't have adequate energy production in the body because your metabolism is somehow dysfunctional, you will suffer. And suffering sometimes for men happens uh, internally, doesn't it? Suffer in silence. So many of the men I work with are the lone wolf who suffer in silence and just like, oh, I don't want to admit I'm getting older. I don't want to admit I'm slowing down. And guys, you don't have to slow down when you get old. I want you to uncouple those things in your brain. Just because you're getting older chronologically, it doesn't necessarily mean you need to get older biologically. We can do our best to reverse this biological aging process by doing a lot of things right. And it doesn't even have to be 100% of the time. I think a lot of guys in their mind get this, this mindset of like, oh, I can't commit to all that. It's too much to commit to. It's not true. It's not. like if, if you commit to some of the high-impact levers or high-impact habits, you can ultimately transform your body and transform the way you feel, look, feel, and perform with a small amount of, of effort and attention often. Now, I want to say this. I would, I would encourage you to believe it's going to be way harder than you think. Way harder than you think. Because I want you guys to come into anything you're doing expecting it to be really hard. Like it's going to be the hardest mountain you've ever climbed in your life. And if you have that, ex that expectation, anything that, that is less than that will, will feel easy. If you come in expecting to, to give minimal effort and attention, you're going to fail. Because anything that, that exceeds that expectation of what it's supposed to be is going to feel like you're trudging through neck deep mud. So I want you to come in expecting like, this is going to be the hardest thing I've ever done, but it's going to be the most rewarding thing I've ever done. And if we can guide you on the path, the certain path, right? The path of like certainty. I'm like, yeah, if we go down this path, it's going to work. And when you when you commit to going all in, your body will change. Your life will change. Your energy will change. You'll have enough energy to do everything you want and more. I have the confidence to make decisions. I was thinking about recently, what drives decision-making? I wish my kids... So every, every, every day I sit down and meditate and I, I, I finish my meditation wishing my kids something wonderful in life. And, you know, I, I wish them love and I wish them loyalty and I wish them happiness. And recently I wish them, wish that they make great decisions. And then I thought, well, how can I support them in making great decisions? And so if we look at someone who's very successful in life, we go, that person makes great decisions. We know that. They're getting, they're getting credibility through achievement, right? So when it comes to us men who make decisions, because we all make decisions consciously and unconsciously. What drives your decisions? Here's what you, we don't realize drives our decisions. Our unconscious patterns drive our decisions. Our energy drives our decisions. The absence of or presence of energy drives our decisions. If I'm sitting on the couch and someone goes, hey, can you do this for me? Right? Do we realize that it's your energy driving the equation? What if you had 
five times as much energy? Would you have two times as much energy? Would you do more? Would you be more productive? Would you be happier? Yes. Would everything you do be easier? Yes. Well, therefore, would you enjoy it more? Yes. You know, I start answering all these questions and you go, oh, wow. Like maybe the things that drive my decisions and maybe why I'm not doing the things I want to do in life isn't because I'm lazy, isn't because I'm incompetent, isn't because of whatever the story I tell myself is sometimes. Maybe it's just solving the energy equation. Let's fix the metabolism. Number four is mindset. We really focus on mindset with men. And as I said, mindset is really just like, there's a lot to, to mindset. You can unpack it deeply, but it's like, hey, what drives your decisions? What is it? Right? How, how capable are you of making conscious decisions and then following through on them? Right? Or is it something unconscious driving your decisions? If it's something unconscious, we, we ideally want to figure that out. Right? Because you can override your unconscious patterning. We're not talking about what you did in, in your childhood. That no, doesn't matter. Right? That's bullshit. That's, people use that as an excuse as to why they don't take action. And if you, if you have a big enough goal, it will outweigh any stress. Doesn't mean you might not suffer along the way. You might suffer because of your mind. But if you're working diligently and passionately toward a goal that's really important to you, sometimes these, these past stressors just seem to, well, either they fall away or they go away for a while. And then once you get there, it's a lot easier to work with those things, isn't it? Number six is cardiovascular optimization, cardiovascular health, we'll call it. And so that's, how does my heart work? How does my vascular system work? How does my penis work? Chance, it's a real thing, right? Number six is sleep. Am I sleeping well without sleep? Everything else falls apart. Sleep may be one of the biggest levers we have. Sleep and movement are probably the biggest levers. People often say nutrition is the biggest lever and I'd say otherwise. I think sleep, energy, and movement are your biggest levers. And, and nutrition, obviously, and energy are very synonymous. But nutrition is just like everything else. It's just a signal, right? It's just a, it's a signal. And so number seven is stress. we got to manage stress. We gotta, and, and stress isn't about doing less and, and asking your body for less. It's actually asking your body to do more, but being more capable of adapting to it. And number eight is hormones. And these are the eight areas we focus on. I'll, re I'll repeat them for you. There's muscle, mobility, metabolism, mindset, cardiovascular optimization, sleep, stress, and hormones. Those are the eight areas that we really think that all men, if we just focus on these eight areas, um, will thrive. And these are the areas we focus on in our phase one program and in our coaching to help you optimize every area. So every Wednesday night, we do a live call. Myself or my team leads the call. And we talk about one of these topics and, and topic that's, that's near and dear to our hearts for men and ultimately should be top of mind for us, right? And so if you gentlemen are, are sitting at home, and this is not top of mind, if you listen to this podcast, it probably is top of mind for you, but if you know anyone who this isn't top of mind for, maybe they're focused on a goal, maybe they're focused on, I want to make money, or maybe they're focused on, I need to be able to pay my bills, or maybe they're focused on you know, the relationship there that they're looking for, or maybe they're focused on, who knows, right? Any number of things. Um, usually it's health, it's wealth, and relationships. Those are the three big ones in, in men, certainly, and probably in women. Can't speak for them. I don't know that one. Uh, but health, wealth, and relationships. And guys, if you're focused on your wealth and your relationships, I can guarantee that your health is playing in. If you are failing in your relationships, if you're failing in your finances, and your health isn't in order, it's a big, big problem. Start with your health. Start with what you can control and get it in order and optimize these eight areas. And uh, I can't guarantee you're going to progress, but I can guarantee you'll have the energy to do a lot more than you do now. You'll feel a lot better. You'll make decisions based on the right things, not the wrong things. It's like I spoke about. So if you are interested in working in an optimized setting with an amazing group of men who support each other, just to be the best we can every day. I talk often about you know, who, who do you surround yourself with? What standard do you hold yourself to? And for me, 
I was very blessed in my life to maybe by accident, happy accident, fall into some really great networks. Again, it's probably not an accident, right? I bring a lot to the table, but fall into some really great networks of people who are doing just truly tremendous things in this world. And I started upping my standard. I was like, oh gosh, if this person is doing this and this person is doing that, I was very good with saying, well, I'm I'm always going to rise to the level of the people around me, or maybe conversely fall to the level of people around me, which is both a blessing and a curse to uh, of who I am, right? So if, if I choose to make it a blessing and I, I accept nothing less than excellence for myself and those around me, then not only do they raise my level, but I raise theirs. And so, Jen, so if this sounds interesting to you and you want to be part of an amazing community of men over 35 who are just constantly growing and constantly striving to be the best in, in health, wealth, and relationships, the Muslim Intelligence Community is for you. And I, I suggest you start, if you're just new to this, this channel, start by subscribing to the podcast and let's continue this journey together. And then you can follow that up and just join the Muslim Intelligence Facebook community. And to be honest, we're just we're just we kind of restarting the Facebook community. I'm not a real big fan of social media. I'm not on social media a lot, and maybe you're not either. But we're just looking for a way to connect with you and for you to connect with us and to support you. So my team will be in there uh, answering your questions, supporting you on your journey. And if you're really ready to commit right now and you're, you're tired of the excuses and you know now's the time for you and you've got the financial capability, then let's jump on a call and work together personally. You can work with me. Um, or you can work with one of my amazing coaches who, uh, when I tell you they're amazing, they're nothing short of, of truly amazing. Like we've got this really great team of highly committed, caring, thoughtful, brilliant coaches who just constantly deliver amazing life-changing results. So Jess, thanks for being here. Again, muscleintelligence.com is the place, is the hub. We're renovating it or we're redoing it right now. And it feels fun. We've got some really new, new stuff coming at you. If you don't already follow on Facebook, if you don't already follow on Instagram, if you don't already follow on YouTube, if you don't already follow the podcast, do all of those or any of those. You can even engage with me on LinkedIn if that's your choice, uh, platform of choice. Uh, I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you listening. And if there's anything I can do to answer any one of these questions or in any of these areas, go ahead and reach out. So if you think of like survival instincts planet-wide, and then the human expression of those, which I would assert that we're both predators and prey. So, and we're hack and herd, right? So, so we survive in conjunction with others. We're, that's why the lone wolf is a saying, or he, that person's a loner, right? Because that's unusual, because we're pack and herd animals. And, and then if you take it up another level where we're hunting, right? The predators are hunting and the prey are gathering. <laughs> and that that is partly dictated by hormones, but it's also mindset. And we can affect each other. So if we're hunting, I would call it committed state of mind. So it's commitment, it's focus, there's a specific result or destination, outcome that is what everything's about, everything's organized for that, and the brain naturally screens out everything that's irrelevant to whatever that focus is. And this is one of the things that causes a lot of trouble between men and women, because women can tell when your focus is elsewhere and because estrogen causes us to scan. And one of the things we're scanning for is connection. So we 
we can walk through a room and and feel and detect the mental and emotional and even levels of energy of anybody in the room, including animals. We can feel it and we're scanning for well-being all the time. It's a natural lead mare, herd animal kind of thing to do is scanning for well-being. And so we, part of that feeling connected, a big part is it makes us feel safe. We're connected. So when our man, our protector is focused on something else, it's frightening to us because we don't know, we don't understand that he's wired to protect us. That he, it doesn't matter what he's focused on. If we cry help and mean it, and we've even seen examples of this, <laughs> a Home Depot, uh, a female cashier saying over the, <laughs> over the, the loudspeaker, help in aisle 11. And my my nephew grabbed a broom. Somebody else grabbed an axe. So like everybody with just a complete instinct, just grabbing a weapon and running to aisle eleven. All she needed was a mop. <laughs> but they that tone of voice, that cry of help, we don't understand that it, it interrupts single focus. That it penetrates like nothing else does. And most men, what they'll talk about that they'll say is it's it's within reach. I will protect anyone within reach. I don't have to know them. I don't have to like them. I don't have to have warm feelings for them at the time. I could even be pissed at them. It's who I am. It's not about them. It's who I am. And women don't know that. If we knew that, I mean, when I found it out, it changed my whole life. And Speaking of trauma, I have a, a student who was had terrible experiences as a, as a teenager. You wouldn't even want to hear about it. And then she ended up becoming a parole officer. And after she studied with me and especially did our course called Understanding Sex and Intimacy, she sent me a letter and she said, I want you to know because of your course for the first time in my life, I feel safe because of who men are. Hmm. Not in spite of who men are, because of who men are. And it completely changed, you know, her managing <laughs> um, criminals, right? In in their parole, it completely changed the way she did what she did and, and how she felt about it. And the reverse happens of this single focus where a woman, you know, a woman will feel like he's not going to protect me so she'll interrupt him <laughs> in order to make a connection, in order to feel safe. And one of the biggest things that um, Greg taught me was how single focus isn't just a state of concentration and determination. Single focus can also be a state of peace. That when you're free to do what you've been committed yourself to doing and you have what you need to do it, it's peaceful in that state of pursuit and can even be joyful. And and then if you're brought up short because you don't have what you need, do you know, <laughs> I don't have the right tool, I don't have the right size implement, I don't have the battery charge, and I don't that the frustration that comes up, right? Because that whole thing got interrupted. And so a woman will interrupt a man when he's focused just in order to connect, to feel safe, 
not knowing did that she just it lessened his ability to produce the result, but she also interrupted his piece. And so she doesn't understand why he goes, what? <laughs> and now she's 10 times more disconnected than she was before she was trying to fix the disconnect. And and just teaching women the state of mind of single focus, which has so much to do with testosterone levels. And as you guys get older, your testosterone levels naturally lessen. Your brain rewires. You actually, the verbal centers of your brain get connected to all the other places that it, they weren't connected to before. You have access to your wisdom all of a sudden, this lifetime of wisdom. Now you can articulate it. And you're compelled to, you give people advice because now you can. <laughs> Not everybody takes it very well. Um, and that all that going on, right? And and so when women learn about that and say, you know, well, then how will I ever, he's always focused. How will I ever get what I need? Like, it's okay to interrupt. Just own that you're interrupting act like what he's doing is worth doing instead of what you're doing is stupid. So I'm going to just start talking to you about this, which is a lot of how women relate to the ways that men relax and wind down and and distract themselves. They think that what you're doing is stupid. So I'm just going to sit down and start talking to you because I have something important to say. Yeah. I've heard you talk about that a number of occasions, I think, where you know, men, that's when we're rebuilding our testosterone when we're doing those sort of mindless activities like sitting on our butt, not doing anything. So <laughs> women say, why Why does he sit on his butt? He doesn't want to help me. He's actually rebuilding his testosterone. I'd love to have you talk about that because that was a great insight that everyone needs to hear. Yeah. Um, thanks for bringing it up. It's one of my favorite topics and teaching men to never tell a woman you're doing nothing. <laughs> and you're building my testosterone. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm, I'm building testosterone. But you probably heard me talk about this word I made up, testosterometer. And, um, oh yeah, I think women have testosterometers. And it's like a, like we, I, I think it's pheromones and we can smell how much juice this man has. For most women, with most women's perception and most women's experience, there's such a thing as too much juice and they're terrified of testosterone. They don't want men to be powerful because they think men abuse power. They don't know how much you're paying attention to using it for us. We don't notice that part. I think really what we're smelling for is easy handy. <laughs> so we can tell when you're wiped out and we won't ask you for something. But when you've like started to get some traction with the building of testosterone, we smell handiness, but it's not too much to be a threat. Right when when you guys are what we would call full of yourself, we'll emasculate you. We will will attack just to bleed off some of that sense of power, which is frightening to us. And and sadly, happiness and power arrive together. So when men are happy, is when women are most likely to attack you. I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah. It's when we're most likely. It's scary. When you guys are pumped and even paying attention to wearing your bodies, like men and women don't feel things in the same place. And I asked men, okay, so where do you feel happiness? And they're, this is so cute. They're just like, 
Right. Right. Eyebrow. Yeah, men don't pay much attention to them being happy. They pay attention to women being happy. And but but then I proposed what I'd observed, which is that it happens here. That when a man feels happy, he, he my students actually tell me it's like he puffed up, right? So when men feel happy, you, you there's this puffing up that happens. It happens in your chest and your shoulders and your in your neck, right? And then if you have a big happy, that energy overflows and it goes down your arms and out your hands. And it's the source of the high five, the slapping the rib, the <laughs> like the you know, Rocky, like all this energy is going to come out the hand, spiking the ball. Thank goodness they stopped making that a penalty. <laughs> Spike the ball in the end zone. I was so mad when they started doing that in college football. Boom. Yeah, no, that's joy. That's pure joy. Let them have it. And of course, anger, anger travels the same path, right? And again, shocking for women. Um, that when a man is angry, right, it's gonna it comes out his hands, and they think like him throwing the wrench or you know the bat or whatever he's got in his hand that that's just a sign of immaturity. Instead of no, honey, he's disarming himself. <laughs> Even in that state, he's protecting you from him. So if you think of the lower ribs on the outside, they kind of work like a bucket handle, right? They kind of come up and down and up and down. And the one the, the ribs in the front work like a pump handle, like an old school water pump. And that's how they, they are meant to function. They come, the ones on the sides come out like a bucket handle, like out and up and then down, out and up and then down. And so when you're learning to breathe, actually going through the exaggerated motion of this, this bucket handle, and allowing yourself to breathe there with your hands and your sides is a really good way to just learn how to use your diaphragm. Learn how to use these muscles of in, inspiration or in, inhalation and ultimately expiration or exhalation uh, is very, very important to long-term function. So why does this matter to you? You're sitting there being like, hey, man, I'm not an endurance athlete. I'm not doing yoga class. I, I don't care. Yes, you do. Here's why. If you've ever had a back pain, if you've ever had tight hips, if you've ever wanted to improve your mobility and not lose muscle as you age, tight shoulders, you absolutely need to breathe. And so when we talk about breathing mechanics, while I tell you what it's supposed to feel like at its root, here's what it's influencing. So your ribs, as you breathe in, expand, as you exhale, contract or, or come closer, get smaller, the circumference gets smaller. And that's literally the excursion of these muscles that exist between the ribs, these muscles that exist around the spine, ultimately the lats, the pecs, all these things are are expanding and contracting, expanding and contracting. At a varying um, excursion, depending on how deep you're breathing in both directions. Now, if my entire life is spent breathing in a very shallow way, very, very small amount of excursion in my breath, well, those muscles will probably start start losing their capacity to really lengthen and shorten. And those muscles, as I literally say, are closing in, the walls are closing in around you. And if we lose those muscles' ability to expand or or respond, 
ultimately we're going to start tightening up. The muscles around the rib cage will start to tighten up and the back will start to tighten up and then I can't get my hands above my head. Oh geez, now I've got neck pain and headaches all because I didn't breathe effectively. Yes, sir, ma'am, that's correct. 22,000 times a day on average is how many times we breathe, maybe less, maybe more. But either way, if it's even a little bit biomechanically ineffective, you're going to have dysfunction. Now, there's a lot of people out there now studying breathing at a really deep level. Some people saying that you breathe more into your right side than you do into your left side because of the, could have that backwards actually, into your left side more than the right side because of the the organs. We have we have a, uh, a dominance of organs on one side of the body. Some people actually have different on different sides of the body, which is probably true. But we want whatever it is, we want to learn to maintain the range of motion. Think of breathing excursion and breathing mechanics like stretching. I think of it like I need to learn to breathe all the way in and all the way out and all the way in and all the way out. And, I, and I'm, I'm training myself to get better and better at that. So I want to learn to train 60, seconds of inhalation, 60, seconds of exhalation, and really learning to relax the musculature. It's like blowing up a balloon. I want to get big. Why? Why does that matter? Because that's the possible excursion of those muscles for some people. Again, maybe you can get 30, maybe you can get 40. Whatever you think you can get, I guarantee you can get more. I think this may be the single most important stretch that you're not doing. The breathing excursion stretch. Blow up your balloon. And so there's a device that I just purchased. I don't have it in front of me. I purchased it off of Amazon like a breather. It adds tension to my breathing. I can dial up the tension that I breathe into and breathe out of. That's actually been really useful for teaching me to forcefully use my diaphragm. So think of the diaphragm like a muscle. It can get stronger. It can get weaker if we don't use it. We don't. We don't. Uh, we lose it ultimately. So, training that diaphragm is just so important. And you know, Brian McKenzie says that, and I one thousand percent agree that the diaphragm is the most important muscle in the body. And I completely agree. So, have you ever seen someone who loses their posture? start to slouch. Well, chairs, the modern chair is probably the single worst invention for our posture, for our for our physical capability, certainly on our hips, certainly on our spine. We learn to just get, we get lazy, all our paraspinal muscles from the base of our skull to the base of our spine start to become lazy because we're always leaning back into a chair. Those muscles lose their requirement. They lose their ability to hold us up and ultimately start losing the, the ability to maintain that perfect erect posture. We start, because we're sitting in a chair, our hips aren't at 90 degrees, it's certainly not an external rotation. We start losing our ability to maintain hip function as well. So uh, if you want to improve your spinal uh, strength, your paraspinal musculature, and even your, your ability to use your diaphragm, one, stop slouching, two, start sitting on the floor. I have every intention of building a house in the future that has no chairs and no sofas. I just want everyone to sit on the floor. I'm going to make it stylish as hell, but I'm also going to have everybody sit on the floor. It's going to be, you know, what we'll say is like Japanese style sitting on the floor, maybe cushions, and we'll see. One of my, um, you know, friends, Kyle Kingsbury, actually does that, which I, Kyle, shout out to you, man. Your near, near, uh, place is awesome. And he's got, he's got kids who uh, just learn how to grow up in the most natural environment possible. Right? I bet they're going to be incredible athletes with incredibly developed bodies that are just so physically capable. They have every advantage over everyone else because everyone else is getting lazy sitting in the couch and sitting in a chair. And these kids are learning to properly use their bodies. They're sitting up erect while they're eating because they have to. Maybe sitting on the floor, there's no slouching. 
Anyways, I don't want to beat a dead horse when it comes to breathing mechanics, but the point is, breathing mechanics is at the top of the list of things that you should and must be doing. And it's not hard. When you sit at the dinner table, you sit at the breakfast table, sit up straight and don't use the back of the chair. When you sit on the couch, don't sit on the floor. Literally sit on the floor. Try to sit up erect. Try not to use the, the lean on. It's going to be hard at first for some people. Or you can sit uh, cross-legged. You can sit straight-legged. Just sitting upright. Use those paraspinal muscles to hold you upright. What you'll notice right away is if you start breathing down your diaphragm, you actually get taller. The posture starts getting better. Using that lower diaphragm actually extends that spine. This is something I do every time I sit. The first thing I'm going to do is actually just check my breathing. I'm trying to vertically align my spine. I want everything from kind of the top of my skull all the way down to my sacrum to be aligned. I want it to be a straight line, like I'm meditating. Thanks for listening to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. For full episode guides with important takeaways and bonus resources, head over to muscleintelligence.com slash learn. If you enjoy the show and find value in the content, please subscribe, share this podcast with at least one person you know and love who would benefit from this content, leave us a review, and support our sponsors. You can see the full list of show sponsors, discounts, and get exclusive Muscle Intelligence deals at muscleintelligence.com slash resources. To join our private community and get VIP access to my master classes, upcoming muscle camps, and other resources that we don't post anywhere else, head to muscleintelligence.com slash community. Most of all, thank you very much for your trust, for your time, and most importantly, for supporting health and fitness in this world. Enjoy your day. I look forward to seeing you here next week. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.